invite you to open your Bibles to math or to Acts rather. In Acts, we're in chapter 27. We have an extended series here as we're looking at the travels of Paul as he's left the port at Caesarea and he's making that trip now to Rome. He had requested that he be heard by Caesar as a Roman citizen. He has that right. And so he's exercising that right, and they're accommodating his appeal. But largely not because they're just that magnanimous, but actually because they really don't want to have to deal with this issue. They don't understand it. They think it's a matter of a theological quibble over issues of, the, of Judaism and so on. That's about as deep as their thinking goes, as polytheistic Romans will And it reminded me of when uh, Paul was brought before, the rest of them were brought before Gallio, the proconsul in Corinth, because they brought them over to be uh, chastened for preaching the gospel. And Gallio has nothing to do with it. He says, this is a matter of their laws their theology and dismisses it out of hand. We've seen that happen with the governors as well, with Felix and Festus. So they're sending Paul all right to stand before Caesar, but it's uh, probably with a measure of relief that they're sending him. They don't really know what to do with him. So he's on his way. He's left the port of Caesarea. He's gone up through Uh, They had a stop 70 miles to the north at Sidon along the Mediterranean coast, the eastern coast there. They went up around the island of Cyprus. They're in the Lee of Cyprus there, as it's called, and they're able to catch the westward currents uh, that take place there. It's a common shipping route. They find themselves going underneath uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, and then they come to Lycia, which uh, its main port, its uh, capital city is Myra. And they stop there and they pick up another ship. And they have, they're on a ship for, that's actually of Adramidium. And this is a grain hauling ship. So it's full of grain. It's full of wheat. And they set out for Canidus to harbor there. They're not able to. The winds get strong. It blows them. They go south down and they end up at Salmone on the eastern coast of the island of Crete. They come around, they go past Lycia, and about five miles past Lycia's Fairhavens, they stop there, and it's getting late in the season. It's past the uh, celebration of the atonement that the Jews experienced, uh, Yom Kippur, as it's called. It's past then and back in 59 AD when this was taking place. It was, Yom Kippur was October 5th. It was scary to... uh, travel by sea during that time frame through November 11th. That is, after November 11th, they shut down shipping altogether. It's that dangerous for three months. They're not allowed to sail again on the Mediterranean uh, until February, it is. So Paul's saying we should winter here. We should winter here at Fairhavens. It's not well known to be a good place to winter. So the uh, ship's captain, the owner of the ship, and and the centurion, and the centurion sort of adjudicates this thing himself and decides to go ahead and press on, and so they're going to try to make it around the Horn of uh, of Crete there and make it the up to the forty miles up to Phoenix and harbor there. Now they had a gentle wind when they started out, and that was favorable to hug the coast of Crete. 
So they thought, see, this was a good choice. But what happens? As we're accustomed to around here, the weather changed. It changed dramatically. They got a northeaster, the Euroquilla, as it's called, an east wind and a north wind, the Latin and the Greek put together in this compound word. The Euroquilla shows up, and it batters them. It sends them down south as the winds are coming from that direction. It really creates a tempest, a condition of a tempest or a hurricane that we're accustomed to, and suddenly it's gotten dangerous. Paul had given them warning you should have listened to me. We should have stayed at Fair Havens, but now here we are. Uh, he doesn't sour on them and go down in the hold and pout. He stays there and continues to resolve issues and make his, his experience in sailing known to them and giving them his opinions. In verse 10 from 27, we see him saying, I perceive. So he gives them their opinion there. Later on, he hears from an, uh, directly from an angel of the Lord who says, everybody is going to be spared on this ship. All 276 of you will be saved. But there's one condition. There typically is when God makes a statement. It's not just, I'm going to save you all and you have no obligations. Have you found that in your life? No, it's you all have to stay on board. What's that going to engender? Well, either panic and you'll try to bail from the ship like the soldiers are about to do, or you'll stay on board, which takes what? Great faith. Faith. You're going to believe what God said. Now they're beginning to trust Paul, even to the point where they want to preserve his life. The centurion is protecting him. He's a prisoner, remember. And so the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, are about to attempt to uh, put them to death, put all the prisoners to death, because they figure when this ship breaks up, we're going to end up losing the prisoners, and then we will have to do their sentence for them. That was the Roman punishment, the imperial punishment for a soldier who lost their prisoner they were appointed to must fulfill that prisoner's sentence. And in many cases, that was death. So... They're going to take great measures, as we'll look at in the text this morning. And I wanted to remind you of another book that just made this whole thing come to life in a way that allows us, excuse me, for our appreciation for the accuracy of this count to, to, to be uh, possessed by us. And this James Smith that I mentioned to you before, who wrote a book in 1880, The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul, F.F. F. Bruce and a number of respected commentators have drawn from that book. It's quite a book. He was an experienced uh, yachtsman who dug into ancient first century maritime ways, how they traveled and so on. And he came up just absolutely blessed and refreshed. And he wrote about it in his long book about how accurate it was. And he said in his account, he reads, he actually makes a comment about Luke's account and what he's writing, and he says in his book, it reads like a logbook, Luke's account. The writer's descriptions, though accurate, are unprofessional, end quote. To me, that lends itself to the veracity of it, doesn't it to you? Why? Because Luke was a physician. He wasn't a professional sailor. But as a physician, what does a physician come typically? A very detail-oriented, fastidious, note-taker, observer. We need to see the blessing that God has given us here in the absolute precision and accuracy. So much so that I believe, as I've said before, that this should be part of our apologetic. It's undeniable how accurate this is. 
I hope we can touch on some of that this morning as we're looking at verse 27 through 44. I'm going to be making my own brave seafaring launch to try to get through to verse 44 this morning. So let's read. I'm going to begin. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. I'm just going to read 27 to 29, and we'll pray, and then we're going to walk through these verses together and see what unfolds. Verse 27 to 29, chapter 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Father, we do pray even now because we need your help, not only in understanding these words, but understanding them rightly. There isn't any extraneous or extra writing that you have in the scriptures. It, we're to pay attention to all of it. And this story has been quite dramatic. It reads like a screenplay in an epic movie, and it catches our attention. But what stops us and gives us pause as you stun us from time to time, when you show us the absolute precise accuracy of these accounts, we're awestruck. Help us, Lord, to make a study of these things ourselves that we can use this with a whole host of other proofs you provide from your word that vindicate the veracity of your word, that vindicate who you are as our great sovereign God. May we see that now. Be pleased to reveal that to us now. I pray for your name's sake. Amen. So verse 27, when the 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, this isn't the Adriatic Sea as we know it between Italy and Croatia. That's called the Adriatic Sea. The whole rest beneath that is the Mediterranean Sea. That portion of the Mediterranean Sea was considered the Adria Sea. And so in our text, they thought they'd help us out by calling it Adriatic. But just so that you know, that was used to be called the Bay of Uh, the uh, Adriatic Sea. So it was considered a bay, that whole, what we call the Adriatic Sea now by on the eastern coast of Italy. So they're in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean in that area, uh, somewhere east of Italy and somewhere uh, west of Crete, obviously. They've spent, we've just jumped 14 days ahead from where we left off last week. 20, verse 27, Luke picks it up. Two weeks they've been at this storm. Two weeks they've been tossed. Two weeks they haven't had much to eat. They've had to stay focused. And you'll remember verse 20 where it says that they got to the point where they abandoned all what? Hope. They abandoned the, you're right, they did. They pitched the cargo, they pitched the tackle, they pitched everything except some of the wheat remains, as we'll see in our text, that they end up getting rid of that. But, yeah, they are wore out, even to the point where they don't see 
any hope. So we have to imagine what this is like. Two full weeks of this. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. That's probably they heard as seasoned sailors. Remember, it's nighttime and it's overcast. That's part of their problem. They can't navigate. But what, would, what do they probably hear? The waves crashing on the shore, right? That's the uh, speculation that we make. They suspected they might be nearing land, so then they took soundings, which is just taking a weighted line, casting it over, letting it hit bottom so that they can measure how far, how deep it is. Remember, this, this boat, this boat from Adramidium, has... Uh, it's 43 feet high, so it's, it carries quite a cargo load, so it sinks deep. So you have to pay attention to soundings because of so much of the ship is, when it's fully loaded, is sunk down. So they took soundings. They hit uh, 20 fathoms, and a fathom, of course, is six feet. So this is 120 feet deep. They found 15 fathoms after that. That's 90 feet. It's easy math. So a little further, they took soundings again, hit 15 fathoms, they're getting to 90. Now it's like, okay, we better figure something out here. So the the scholars, as I mentioned, took a careful study of this and to calculate the ancient maritime ways and a ship of this size that was used by the Romans in their merchant marine fleet that would haul... uh, grain, wheat primarily, from Alexandria, northern coast of Africa, up to Myra, and then over to Italy. And they spent quite a bit of time, more time than I have, that's for sure, that a ship of this size in those conditions back then would have traveled about 36 miles every 24 hours in gale force winds. So they're able to calculate all of this, and this is what they came, they came up with. So Verse 28 has the soundings, and with other information that they put together, they're passing the, uh, uh, a part of, of Malta that's called Kura. It's a peninsula that sticks way out. I'm going to have a map coming up later for you on that. You'll see where Kura is in relation to, on Malta with relation to where they ended up just sort of beachheading or getting hung up on a reef or a sandbar. But we'll get to that as we go along. So as this James Smith had written, let me just read this to you. The distance from Cauda, the island that they came from, which is 23 miles southwest of Crete, that's where they set sail. 14 days it took them to get from Cauda. Remember, they were afraid they were going to be uh, caught down into northern Africa. The greater Syrtes, which were... They called it quicksand. It was the graveyard of ships. But instead, the Lord was pleased to allow them to be caught up in this storm for 14 days and send them circuitously, I'm sure, over. And it's, it's remarkable to reflect. If you look at a map at Malta, it can't even show up on any of the maps that we have. It's a dot. For them to hit that, that little dot on that map with the Mediterranean as big as it is, Already that's remarkable. But when they did the math, it's, then it's like amazing in God's glory. So Smith says the distance from Cauda to Kura is 476.6 miles, 
which is at the rate at deduced from information, would take exactly 13 days, one hour, and 21 minutes. So at that speed, it would take 14 days to get to the three miles where Paul actually lands. It's, it's amazing, the accuracy. So in the harbor, they call it St. Paul's Harbor, of course, for obvious reasons. And you'll be, able to, you'll be able to see that when we get to that map of Malta. Verse 29, For fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So anchoring from the stern, when they know they're near shore, if they're being tossed about, you're going to put down all your heavy anchors in the back on the stern to keep the bow pointed toward shore. They're waiting for daylight so they can actually see where the shore actually is because you're about to see they, they didn't recognize where they were in verse 30. They didn't know where they were, but they'll be able to see in daylight. They can cut the anchors and then sail in. So that's their plan. So they prayed for day to come. And I just wanted to make a note on that point. Prayer and using reasoned labor, engaging reason to know what we need to do to survive, those things, prayer, reason, and labor, are not in conflict with each other. They're not mutually exclusive. They actually work together. God works through means. We have to remember that. We don't just pray and let the ship of our life drift. We are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For the purpose of good works, good works, good deeds. God gets glorified through the efforts we make to cooperate with his will. And they're doing that. That's what Paul's doing. Here's what we need to do because here's what God said. So just taking note of that. They prayed for day to come, putting yourself in their position after what they've been through and now watching as those waves crash over the stern they're, it's breaking up we'll come to that in a moment it's all breaking up remember they still haven't gained much hope except for hearing some waves crashing perhaps and taking soundings and know they're coming to some kind of land so maybe it might be a case where we have to dive off of this thing falling apart and try to swim to shore wherever shore is it's an amazing situation here So prayer and reason and labor work together. Thomas More said, the things, or used to pray, the things, good Lord, that we pray for, give us the grace to labor for. End quote. Remember that. Remember that. Knowing God's will is actually a call for action on our part. It was for Paul. He didn't go, when the angel came and said, All of you are going to be spared, but you have to stay on the ship. Oh, excellent. I'm going to go down below where the rest of the food is and maybe a a place I can get away from all of this weather. I'm going to watch God work. No, he's watching you work. He's watching the decision that you make to have the faith to trust in what you know to be his revealed will in your life. Is that a mystery? Actually knowing the will of God and what we need to do next from day to day shouldn't be confusing. We make it confusing. Sometimes I think maybe we want to make it confusing. It's not that easy. Really? With all that he's given us. So we pray and we use reason because he's given us a book. He didn't give us a movie or a soundtrack, a DVD. He didn't give us a a song. He gave us his book and said through his prophet Isaiah, come let us 
reason together, saith the Lord. That's why he doesn't have to shout. Because he's speaking to you if you're willing to listen. It's amazing that in that storm, the Apostle Paul, I picture him on the deck. Imagine the sound and fury of this storm. And he keeps his composure. What an exemplary human being. It's been that way since we've been with Paul since chapter 9. An amazingly impressive man with the grace that he has, with the trust, his level of faith, his level of composure and peace, whether he's standing before a tempest or he's standing before the Sanhedrin who could have him executed in a moment. He never wavered. So we don't sit back and say, well, God said he would do it, so... Let's take the cheap seats and just watch. Let's see what he does. Inaction is not faith. It's fatalism. Fatalism lacks faith. Faith works through love. Galatians 5, 6. Faith works through love. Faith, you can shorten it to say faith works. Faith is active. Faith is using reason to say, I'm going to figure out what God wants here. I'm not going to panic. Why should I panic when he promised I'd get to Rome or whatever your destination is? I'm not going to panic. I'm going to hunker down in his word and I'm going to pray and then I'm going to rise up from that and I'm going to do the things necessary to fulfill the will that he's given me. That's it. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, the... They wouldn't do that, would they? And had lowered the ship's boat. Um, We might know it as a dinghy or more commonly as a lifeboat. That's what this is. They call it the ship's boat. By the way, I learned the hard way from sailors that you don't call a ship a boat. Am I right? (laughs) Let's not go there. Sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense, there's the word to underline, of laying out anchors from the bow. Listen, we've got the stern anchored. We're going to just head up to the bow and, and anchor that right away too so that we can really have some stability here. Meanwhile, they're headed for the ship's boat. Who do you think they run into? Paul said, verse 31, to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Would we have the tenacity? Would we, would we be able to well up with the absolute temerity to look at the centurion and these Roman soldiers as a prisoner and say, if they leave, we're all going to die? In the middle of this storm, There's different ways a person in Paul's position could react to this situation, right? How does he react? Paul is in his typical fashion. He's he's calm. He's clear-headed. He's still reasonable. Could we use some of that in our culture right now? Just a little bit? Can we all just calm down for a minute and reason these things out together? No. The more we slide toward Gomorrah, the more what is thrown out the window? reason you can't reason with anybody you'll get out you'll get shouted down you'll be mocked you'll be chided you'll be maybe even threatened 
or I guess the current term is canceled. He's calm. He's resolute. He's fixed. He's been given a destination that Christ himself earlier had guaranteed you must be in Rome. He rests in that. And he says, if they leave the ship, we all die. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now we have the centurion actually paying attention to Paul, right? Verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. That was quick. These soldiers wasted no time, did they? Severing the ropes and letting the lifeboat go. If If you leave right now on that boat... We'll all perish. Why don't they just let, the, okay, walk away from the boat? No, because sometimes it's necessary to cut the lines and get it rid of it so the temptation is gone. Can that be a metaphor? Of course. Of course it can. You understand that. There's an important principle here. It is detrimental to hang on to things that might otherwise tempt us to sin. We're not going to just lash that dinghy down. We're going to cut the line and get get it out. No more temptation. Everybody's on board. They've got to stay on board that way. You have to figure out what those little dinghies are in your life and what has to be severed to let them go. You don't, you don't tinker with it. If you know anything about John Owen or, or Thomas Watson, you know, Sin and Temptation by Owen, he has a, this wonderful 12-step program of weaning yourself off of sin. You should read it sometime. Somebody better correct me right now. It's called mortification. When's the last time you used that word in your common day-to-day parlance? Mortification. What does mortification mean? Muerto. Cut it. Get it out. Get it out of your airspace. No temptation. Gone. That's the whole point of his book. I have, actually have a, a quotation for you from Owen. But the prophet uh, uh, Samuel, as, uh, as my former pastor, was wont to use this as a metaphor, hacked Agag to pieces. That sounds brutal, doesn't it? When will we stop trifling with sin? I'll tell you why we do. Because we do not understand. And why don't we understand? Because we don't want to. The power and the devastation, that which overcomes you, to that you are enslaved. Second Peter 2.19 whatever it is that overcomes you, why would I want that boat in my life? Cut it out. Pitch it off. Get rid of it. You're hearing me now. Do it. Do it. Whatever it is. Get it out. John Owen said, He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work, end quote. That's the point. You leave off striking while your enemy sin is still breathing. You gave it a hair's breadth in the back closet or in the basement of your life or 
wherever it might be, it's still there. It's nasty little heartbeat is haunting. And you know it. Get it out. Verse 32, they cut it through, they let it go. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. So here you've got a man. Now, remembering all the way along, this is their prisoner. You've got a man who didn't get his good sense advice taken in Fairhavens to stay there while everything was dangerous. And he's standing up to the Roman soldiers who are trying to escape on the lifeboat. And now look what he does. Paul urged them all to take some food. Now, you're challenged all the way through this account to put yourself in Paul's place. If you're to mine out the things the Lord would have for you today, be honest, would you and I think and have the kind of considerate caring to encourage people to eat? Winds blowing, ships falling apart. Roman soldiers saying, I'm out of here. Let's go up front. In the bow, we'll pretend we're letting down the anchors. Hold it. If you leave, we're all dead. And he turns and he says, take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food have taken nothing. Verse 34, therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. You remember the hairs that Jesus said that he keeps count of. Now he's saying you won't lose one. Do we trust that? Implicitly trust that? So, with the spiritual encouragements that he's been given about what the angel had said, that they're all going to be saved. He's spiritually encouraging over and over again. He gives them also practical exhortations. Here's another wonderful principle. He gives them practical exhortations. Why? Because biblical love is not just concerned with the spiritual. It's concerned with the practical. It's concerned with the physical. Why will you continue to do the things that are detrimental to your physical body. He's considered, he's considered about the whole of man that he claims to love, that we're all called to love. It isn't just giving the gospel. Certainly we do that and we're called to do that. Shame on us if we don't do that. But when's the last time we said to someone, I'm concerned about your health and I think it's something that you could do something about and you're not. How popular are those sermons? You need to eat something. You need to build up your strength. This body belongs to the Lord just as much as my spirit does. Because of my sin and the sins of my first parents, it's headed for the grave. That's going to happen. The ratio is one to one. We're all getting there. But we're not Epicureans. We're not... Let's, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we what? Die. No, I want to I wanna live for him. 
heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want a vessel that's capable of serving him, that can function well, instead of my self-indulgence, indulging in things that limit my ability to serve him. I don't care a whit about what this culture thinks about physiques and all that nonsense. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with this body belongs to him, and I want to serve him well, and I want to serve him long. So I'm not going to indulge in things that depreciate that opportunity. That's the point. Paul knew that there was going to be some strong physical exertion that lies ahead, and they were going to need their strength to endure it. That's love. That's love. That's the whole package of biblical love. Not just telling about Jesus or encouraging somebody spiritually. Those are necessary. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. But saying, we need to talk about something else. Verse 35, And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all and broke it and began to eat. Verse 36, then all were encouraged and ate food themselves. What a wonderful moment of rejoicing. He gives them that wonderful spiritual encouragement right from the word of God. And then he says, let's eat. You all need something to eat. You're you're worn out. You're beat down. You're weary. You're going to need strength for whatever comes next. Because I didn't get the details. God tells us where we need to go, but he doesn't share the details, does he? Not often. (laughs) How are you going to get there? Paul can't imagine that this would have been the route he'd take to get to Rome. He only knew that God said, you're going to be in Rome. Amazing. They were all encouraged. Paul's Christian faith then went beyond the good news of the gospel. It went into his prayer for them. It's supporting them by having the loving kindness that gives attention to their physical needs here. He took bread giving thanks to God, he broke it. Does that sound familiar to you? Does the word Eucharist come to mind? I say this is a type of Eucharist. There are many, perhaps on board, that are convinced this is their last, what? Supper. We're going to perish. He draws them together with the body of Christ. Offers thanks in the presence of all breaks bread. Remember when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? See how Paul does things to unify? There is myriad opportunities to cause division and get into conflict, isn't there? He doesn't do that. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is rich with spiritual truth. Verse 37, we were all in all, 276 persons in the ship. Verse 38, and they, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into 
the sea. They needed to. They had purged some earlier. But as I said, they kept some not only so they'd have something to eat, but also we can assume for ballast. And now they want to remain lighter. Being in a storm, you want to remain lighter so you can ride out these huge waves instead of trying to take them on with some weight down below. But plus, in other accounts that I was reading about, Josephus has an account, and there's other accounts back in this first century uh, where there's shipwrecks or there's ships that were being broken up. One of the first things that happened, because they were made out of planks, as we talked about before, is that starts to separate. It takes on water, and it ruins the cargo anyway. So they're just getting rid of all of this, probably to get remove any ballast, and probably also because there's nothing worth to eat. And they're hopefully going to be going into this shore. So, verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land. I mentioned that earlier. Well, how could they? It was the middle of the night or beforehand, and they had overcast skies. They had no idea where they were. They didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay. This is the St. Paul's Bay, as it's called today. And I know it's going to be hard to see on that little screen. But Kura, I was mentioning too, when they were taking the soundings, for in some way they kind of knew where that they were passing. There was later determined that they were passing Kura Point. Just by recounting what took place, this was determined, that they're passing Kura Point, and they end up between Salmonetta and the, uh, that all is St. Paul's Bay and on the coast of Malta. So, verse 40, So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. They just let them loose at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. So the riders, rudders had been tied up while they were in a storm. They just went free floating. You know, they, if they were going to, if they were in this storm, they could actually destroy the rudders. They tied up, they dropped the rudders, so now they can steer their way into shore. Then hosting the foresail, not the mainsail. Some, I think it might be King James says mainsail. It's not the mainsail. That wouldn't make any sense. It's the foresail. They're going to cruise into shore. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. They didn't quite make it. They made it between Salmonetta and the coast there. And that's an interesting spot. Here's how it's put in the text. Verse 41, but striking a reef. That's an interesting word in the Greek. They ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So they didn't quite make it, but they're close. It's hung up now and there's a a good reason for that. This striking the reef it actually literally means a sandbank or a cross current. The literal definition of that term means a place between two seas. There's two currents that run into each other between Salmonetta and the coast of Malta. And so what it does when those currents swirl around is it creates either reefs or sandbars or whatever, and that's what they got hung up on. Just the accuracy, again, is, is, is notable. It's striking. So this is where James Smith gives us in detail. He says, he says that how perfectly these features still distinguish the coast of Malta. It's still that way. It's still that way. They can go and you can go and find that today. You can find these spots 
you can, you can do your own investigation of the same things that they looked into and come up finding, uh, just marveling at the accuracy of it. Verse 41, the bow stuck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up. So the Roman soldiers came to another conclusion. Like, okay, this thing's going to break up. The prisoners are going to escape, and we're going to have to take on their punishment. So verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. That's their solution. <laughs> nice. It's like, whatever. We can't let them get away. Lest any should swim away and escape. So finding themselves in together, facing a situation in imminent peril, that typically will unite enemies. That will unite people, disparate peoples that were... Uh, 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 heretofore opposed to one another, usually if we're all going to die, we need to work together. No, not the Roman soldiers didn't see it that way. They're worried about their own skins. We need to kill these prisoners. It's survival of the fittest because they're about to commit a very cruel act. At this point, I'm struck by another aspect of Paul. It occurred to me at that point of the text and the story that we've been going through now, this is our third week, that he does what he does without an expectation of gratitude. He just told them everyone has to remain on the ship. They were about to leave by the lifeboat. They cut the lifeboat away, and now here they go. They just, the soldiers on the, their own are taught. It becomes privy to uh, information to uh, Paul and obviously Luke at some point that they, they're going to kill them. So, he's not... When he gives life-saving information, he doesn't have a demanded expectation of gratitude or appreciation for it. How long do I... This is, these are the thoughts going through my head as I'm exegeting this work. How, how long would I last in a calling that is rarely, if ever, appreciated? How long would you... How long would I? We all need to consider that because it strikes me that Paul simply does what the Lord is calling him to. Again, amazing. So his motives for serving essentially these thankful, thankless men in this harrowing, storm-tossed adventure was not only pure, it was selfless. He never gives thought to himself what might put him in danger or... He doesn't mull over, they don't appreciate me. They never thank me. You'd think that the soldiers would get it by now. I'm trying to save their life. And now here they go. They're going to kill the prisoners. A servant of Jesus Christ serves without expectation 
appreciation, or gratitude. Or you have to wonder if that's really your calling. If it tempts our flesh to become embittered because we're not appreciated or we're not being uh, rewarded in any kind of a way at all, people's thanks or appreciation, anything like that, then that's not our calling. We'd have to make our heart right and find out what it actually is. Because when he calls one to serve, he doesn't say, and man, people are just going to pat you on the back. They're going to say, man, you're awesome. You know, the thing that you're doing and man, go for it. That's No, sadly, in a fallen world among fallen human beings, and guess what? Christians are fallen human beings. We didn't graduate yet. We have that temptation, a temptation to self-pity, a temptation to say, they don't appreciate me. Why should I keep doing this, cleaning the bathrooms? Why should I keep raking up those goofy round balls that look like the enlarged picture of the coronavirus? And they seem to fall into the parking lot all year long. What's up with that? See, in the flesh, yeah, in the flesh, you could... You know, I mean, you could have a pity party. You could get downright embittered about not being noticed, not being appreciated. And then you have to look at Christ, don't you? Look at what he did for mankind. And what appreciation was he shown? We killed him. And not before some pretty nasty things hurled his way. And not before some slaps, spitting, plucking the beard. How long would you or I last in ministry in those kinds of conditions? We have this centurion that's obviously changed his view of Paul. So verse 43, the centurion wishing to save Paul. He now sees the value in this messenger of the Lord. Kept them from carrying out their plan. Praise God. So thankfully, as happened before, God gave the man, the Roman leader in charge, a heart for Paul. We saw that with Claudius Lysias, the tribune who saved him from the mob in Jerusalem. He had a heart for Paul, and you could see. He saved Paul when they were plotting to kill him on his trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He stepped in and did something about it. And that's what's happening with this centurion, this Julius. It's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let you kill those prisoners because Paul says they need to remain on board. The centurion himself is showing signs of effective leadership, isn't he? he? He's remaining calm too. He kept his wits about him. He's using reason in the midst of a hurricane. He took command. He made decisive decisions. He didn't dither over things. He wasn't caught napping not only that, but he was caring like Paul. He made he, a quick response to things. These are all admirable. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard, or overboard rather, first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. Can you see the wisdom in that decision? 
if somebody needs something as a flotilla, if somebody needs if somebody needs a piece of ship debris to make it to shore, what does that indicate to you? They don't know how thank you. They probably don't know how to swim, right? So he has the swimmers go first. So that the people that need help can be helped. It's kind of like that what the uh, airline the airlines tell you when you're on a flight, when the masks drops, don't rush over to your child to make sure they ha- put it on you first so that you have your wits about you and you're not starting to get faint so that you can help your children. This is the same idea. You know, all along we've seen the Romans just protect Paul. So, so we're not, you know, giving a standing ovation to the Romans. We know better than that. But we do see God's use of them, don't we? To preserve Paul, he's going to get to Rome. But he will never be able to figure out how that's going to happen. That's for sure. So this was a wise decision. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. You know, God working through miracles is impressive enough. But God doing these amazing feats through ordinary human activity and decision, even more so, wouldn't you say? How he accomplishes all of the things he says, I have willed it, I will do it. See, the reason I think he's emphatic about that, at least one of the reasons, this is my own surmising, is because he wants to make sure we know it's my will and I will do it. So you can't frustrate the decretive will of God because it is God's work that fulfills it. Now, his directive will can be frustrated because his directive will or his revealed will, the scriptures, in other words, our imperatives and so on, can they be frustrated? Well, of course they can because they're fulfilled by whom? You and I. So no, you're going to get to Rome. I'm going to get you there. But you don't just rest in the hold of the ship, eating wheat, waiting for this to happen. You go to work. You help. You care about these people. These are souls that I've created. You make sure they have something to eat, they're going to need it. He's working. Faith works through love. Faith without loving Attention to fulfill the will of God is fatalism. It has no faith. Oh, well, God's going to do this. Let him do it. God made a promise to spare all human life, but it came with instructions, strict instructions. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be Saved. God still prefers to work this way, his accomplishments through human means. So again, his word is clear. It's crystal clear. He works through means. It's us who get confused, and I think sometimes intentionally so. Do I have to do anything here? Um, probably. If you know Christ and you have Christ in you, it's he that is in work at work in you. Right? Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. What's next? 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's Ephesians 2.10 lived out. You are his workmanship. You are his poema. You are his story. You're his sonnet, his poem. It's specific. It's only you. And you've been given this that you might fulfill the work of Christ, whatever that calling is, that he established beforehand that you might walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 says, right? That's Paul. Quick action, wise decision from these leaders, the strength and fortitude of the seasoned sailors, all of this that we've been seeing, skill, perseverance, keeping clear-mindedness, clear-headedness, caring about the people, caring, moreover, to fulfill the will of God that God made clear to them through His servant, The biblical record shows that that actually saved 276 persons. Yet it's who who saved them. God saved them. He works through means. They're all beat up. They had lost all hope. They've been cast about for two weeks. Becoming emaciated. They haven't eaten in two weeks, the text says. If we would only open our eyes, we would see him working in the ordinary pots and pans of living. Because he's in them, he's interested in you seeing it that way. We make things lesser or greater, don't we? He doesn't. He gives each one of us a calling, a demographic a context where we're born, who raised us on and on to fulfill his work in us. Paul gets that. We see it all throughout his travels. He's fulfilling this promise that he made to him. If we would look, we would see this life-sustaining, superintending work in the providence of God, and we would marvel and give him the glory he deserves for it. only I want to finish with a few verses that came to mind that I hope will take this even deeper in our appreciation you're familiar with most of these I think Isaiah 55 10 to 11 listen to this in the context of where we've just been with the apostle in this shipwreck For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We've just seen this happen these past three weeks. Or Psalm 119, 89 to 91. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. 
but your appointment, by your appointment, they stand this day. For all things, all things are your servants. Apply that to our story. Apply that to any place we might be in in Scripture. Or even more succinctly, Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's why one of the purposes in our threefold purpose as a church is the supremacy of Scripture's. He's exalted His Word with all of His name above all things, the psalmist writes. The reason God does this is not so that people are impressed with Paul. That's not His objective. It's so that people would be impressed with Him. God asserts His absolute authority. This is your note as we're closing. God is asserts his absolute authority with unlimited power in order to establish his divine supremacy. So much for their multitude, their polytheism, so much for Zeus and Mars and Jupiter and all the other gods that they worshipped. I can tell you one thing, when 276 people ended up on that shoreline, there was a whole lot of believers There had to be, or they're unwilling. They had enough, plenty to be convinced by. Isaiah 44, 23 28 to 28. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Bring forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhibited, inhabited, excuse me, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Whoa, you, you just said that of the, of the Persian king who won't be born again for another 200 years. That's why the liberal, text, the liberal textualists say that there's a break in Isaiah. There's early Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 and then later Isaiah 40 to 66. Because they cannot reconcile this, that God would name his servant by name that isn't born yet and allow a king of this conquering empire to be used as his shepherd. That is a sovereign God. What other God could do such a thing? There is none, he might say. He says in other places, in other ways. 
He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And we saw that as the captive Israelites were being released from Babylon. We saw that when the Persians conquered Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, who had originally conquered Jerusalem and took them captive to Babylon. Because the Lord says, you're going to serve some time in captivity. You're going to serve 70 years. So from 586 to 516, 70 years, when the temple was built in 516, or back up into 586 before that, when there was a man named Cyrus after he had conquered the Babylonians, and now the Persian Empire rises up, and he says, let them go. Probably maybe knew of a prophet named Daniel who shared this with him. Maybe that's what incentivized him. We don't know. It's plausible. That's God. That's our God. And I leave you with something I started this series with. There's two things for us to focus on here. And then we're done. Here it is. From the beginning of the series, we focused on two subjects. Number one, the supremacy and absolute power and authority of our sovereign God. And number two, the submission perseverance, confidence, fearlessness. By the way, this is supposed to describe us. Unfaltering faith and loving, caring concern for all people of the Apostle Paul. Both are equally striking. Both. One, we embrace without wavering in our faith. The other should characterize you and I. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this absolutely precise and accurate telling. But we don't need historians to tell us that your word is accurate and precise. It is. We concede that now, Lord, before you in prayer. And pray, O oh Lord, that you would work in us these characteristics, oh, that we would have a calm mind, oh, that we would seek to reason with those opposed to us, looking for their greater good, having grief in our heart if they don't, don't know you, having the ability and the means to reason with them, Lord. Help us be fearless. Help us to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth. Help us to be selfless, self-sacrificing for the sake of others. Help us to be like Paul, who himself, we can see clearly, sought to be like his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, I pray that anyone in this house or anyone who online who hears this message doesn't know the God of whom I speak, that even now they would come to you. You've given us your Son, Jesus Christ, to be reconciled, that all of these things would come to life as they have for those of us who know you. These are truths that they need, O oh Lord, or they will perish like those would have 
Had they escaped the ship, they'd have drowned in the sea. Don't let that happen, Lord, on our watch. Help us to speak the truth with joy in our hearts, knowing of the transformation you've been accomplishing in our own lives. Jesus is real. He's alive. He's on the deck of our lives. And when the wind and the waves cause a battering and a shattering and a twisting and a turning, and we don't know which way is up or down, Lord, may we trust in you. For you are good, you are wise, and you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.